Hi, everyone, and welcome to Content People, a podcast where we talk to creatives and leaders to uncover actionable advice for our listeners. I'm the show's creator and host, Meredith Farley. I'm here alongside Ian Servin, a creative director of video and special projects at Brafton and the producer of this show. Hey, Ian. Hey, Meredith. So for today's episode, we talked to Dina Denham-Smith. Dina is an author, coach, and speaker, and she's the CEO and founder of Cognitas, a coaching organization. Dina is very professionally decorated. She has an MS in organizational psychology and an MBA from the University of Michigan. Her clients include senior leaders and teams at brands like Adobe, Goldman Sachs, PwC, Netflix, Dropbox, DocuSign, Lyft, and Stripe. And she writes regularly for the Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and Forbes. Her HBR content was how I first found Dina. In particular, she wrote an article called The Emotional Labor of Being a Leader that really, really grabbed me. Absolutely. I'm so glad that we got the chance to talk with her. And I feel like we covered so many different topics from giving and receiving effective feedback to what it actually means to be a good leader during periods of uncertainty and change, like the one that we're definitely in right now. Yeah, I agree. She had some great insights. And we also talked a little bit too about her creative process for her own writing. I think I said something to this effect in the conversation, but mentally I had put Dina in the management slash leadership bucket of our guests rather than creative. But we ended up talking a little bit about how she tries to work with her unconscious mind to support her own writing and creative processes. So I think she was just truly a great guest for content people. So without any further ado, here is our interview with Dina. Dina, thank you so much for agreeing to be on this episode. I am a really, really big fan of your writing and content. Your HBR articles are how I came to kind of know you and do a little Googling to learn more about you. You're so professionally decorated from your degrees and experiences to your published work and coaching organization. I kind of almost didn't know where to start and how to structure this interview. But for folks who aren't familiar with you or your work, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, I can. And and thank you for the invitation. I really I really appreciate it. Um, and 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 the very kind introduction. Um, but yeah, for the for those of you who don't know me, which is probably most of you, I'm an executive coach. I am based just north of San Francisco, in Marin County, and um, and I really spend my time coaching senior leaders predominantly. Um, as well as some teams. What was your pre-coaching background? How did you get into this work? Yeah, I I, I honestly feel as though um, this was always the direction I was moving without knowing it. Um, so really, even as a little girl, there were just a couple things, you know, as I look in the rearview mirror, I always have been deeply fascinated by people. Um, you know, when I was little, I was like, I want to grow up and be a psychologist. But then I had this really entrepreneurial bent. I was always opening up little businesses and, um, you know, trying to sell the most Girl Scout cookies. And I, I had a I had a real commercial side to me um, that was just inherent. And then those tracks really sort of continued throughout my life. And so both in terms of my undergrad and my graduate education, it was really a combination of organizational psychology and business. Um, 
And then I had multiple chapters that were really um, either leaning more in one of those ways or the other. So I was an organizational consultant for some time. Um, I had chapters as a leader myself. Um, so I, I jumped out of the fray of management consulting and led a really large team at a at a startup that was scaling um, quite quickly. <laughs> um, moved into private equity, you know, worked with a team there, and um, and then I I I just got to sort of a reflective place and was thinking, you know, this is all these chapters have been amazing in one way or another, but I want it. I just want to, I'm ready to pivot a little bit and I want to get back to directly helping leaders um, and helping them lead. And so that's ultimately what took me into this, this, this latest chapter of executive coaching. And so it's very much still this interplay of psychology and business, um, but focused, focused really on helping this population that I care so deeply about, which is, which is our leaders. Oh, thanks. So what type of clients are you working with and what, why are they generally coming to you? What problems or challenges are they looking for some support or guidance from? Yeah. Um, so most of my leaders um, tend to be more, more senior leaders um, and probably in part because of my background as well as geographical area. A lot of the clients I work with come from tech. Um, so it can be like old school tech or it could be fintech or biotech, but I, I work with a ton of tech leaders. I also work with a number of leaders who are more in financial services. So predominantly, you know, private equity, hedge funds, um, you know, sort of diff different players in that space. Um, and then I dabble in other industries as well. And but what's interesting to me is I don't actually have a preference. People are people. Like it doesn't actually matter if you are in retail or if you're in tech. Um, the 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 issues that I see leaders having are um, are industry agnostic. Um, so a lot of the things that I end up working with leaders on have to do with really how they lead themselves. And how, as well as how they lead others in this really, um, you know, like very kind of chaotic, quickly changing and uncertain world. And so I might be working with a leader on, on how they're managing their team, right? How, how they're ensuring sort of this, um, psychological safety and high performance, how they're influencing across an organization, um, We'll get into executive presence, right? Like, how are they showing up in these high stake moments? Yeah, and, and so it's it's a lot within that sort of intrapersonal and interpersonal kind of space. Um, there's coaches that will do that are more focused on um, let's get down and dirty in your financials, and I can find you cost savings. That's that's not the kind of coaching I do. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like. From where you're located and we're in, you, I feel like you are somewhat at the epicenter of a lot of things that are happening right now. And mm -hmm. I imagine you're having some interesting conversations in very important rooms, physical or virtual. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's funny you mentioned, well, it's not funny you mentioned executive presence. It makes a lot of sense. We actually, we also, we've interviewed another uh, wonderful guest was Ellen 
Gillis, who is also a coach, and mm-hmm. she brought up executive presence to you. How, how do you define executive presence and what do you think it entails? Yeah, I know. It's an interesting thing, right? Like, because it is this term that gets bantered about and it's like, well, what does that actually mean, right? Other than like someone has this je ne sais quoi, right? Like, but it is an amalgamation of qualities that lead others to have confidence in and respect the person, mm-hmm. right? And so it is the way that you communicate. It is... um and and I mean that verbally and non-verbally, yeah. um, it is especially when someone is first meeting or having exposure to another, it's, it, there is really like a large visual component to this. Most of our brain is, is like visual circuitry. And so when we talk about first impressions really mattering, it's, yeah. it's more than just a saying, um, you know, we we really notice how people carry themselves. Yeah. Um, and even even the clothes they choose to wear. And that may be very, very superficial. Um, but it actually it's it's it it's perception. We're in the world of perception. And sometimes, you know, um it, that doesn't matter. So it's it's really kind of communication, it's how you're showing up visually. Um and and kind of really gets into credibility, right? Which is one part competence and one part relationship ability. If someone has, say someone is a manager and is trying to move into a director role or director mm-hmm. or working to move into a VP or exec role, if he or she has been given feedback that they need to work on their executive presence, but they maybe haven't been given the most detailed Info like to what that means. Is there anything actionable they could do to somewhat quickly project or develop that competence and confidence that you're talking about? Yeah, I, you know, it's. Um, I think part of what you're, what you mentioned um, that I want to address first is uh, most feedback. It's, it's really broken because. Yeah. People do get this generic feedback, right? You need to work on your executive presence. You need to work on your communication skills. Like, we need more out of you. Like, what does that all really mean? It could mean so many different things. And so someone who receives that feedback, honestly, is a little bit at a loss mm-hmm. unless um, unless you follow up and ask these probing questions, right? And when I work with leaders, one of the things that actually we do at the front end is I tend to do a lot of stakeholder interviews so that they can actually get very specific and actionable feedback. So we know when someone needs to work on their executive presence, it actually relates to a lot of sort of these like nonverbal behaviors they're displaying in a meeting. Or for another person, maybe every time they speak, they finish their sentence with a question mark, right? Like it can be your um, your lack of executive presence could be so many different things. And so when I work with people, I try to get this great feedback for them up front. Let's just say, though, that you are um, in an organization and you're not working with a coach who can do that for you and you receive that feedback, you know. Then the question is, what do you do with that? 
So um, let's let's say it comes from your manager. You know, one possibility is you have a follow-up conversation with your manager. You know, thanks so much for um, your your thoughts on that. Like this would be a great area for me to develop. I'm really curious, what specifically should I be doing more of? And then conversely, what specifically should I be doing less of? You know, you might also ask like, I'm curious, like, are there other people who you think could give me good insight into what I could do to um, have this, you know, increased ability, you know, presence? Yeah. So that's that's one way. Um, We can also get a good sense for our presence um, by soliciting from people, sometimes anonymously, like create like a little easy Google survey or whatever. What are three adjectives that that you would choose to describe me. Um, what what comes into a room when I do? Like, there's a lot of sort of very open-ended questions that might be able to, to help you just hone in on, like, how are other people perceiving me, right? Yeah. Um, and then soliciting their ideas um, for how you could just do better in the future. That The problem with feedback, too, is, like, this is past, like, What's done is done, right? Like what we really need are ideas for how to do something better in the future. Um, and so, you know, when when I'm working with clients too who are in this position of soliciting their own feedback, I'm always orienting them to like make sure you're getting suggestions for the future. Because in part it takes that other person that you're talking to out of the role of judge, which is very uncomfortable. Like nobody likes giving harsh feedback. Yeah. But you would list them as like a, a partner, a brainstorming partner for what you could change or do differently. You're going to effectively get the same information, but it makes it a lot more comfortable for them to share it because they're no longer judging you. They're providing ideas. Such a fantastic tactic. Turn them into a brainstorm partner. Yeah. Take the burden of the critical judge off of them. Right. Right. Thank you. I think those are fantastic tips. And I'm also thinking as you talk about the way that I think a key point of managing up is making sure to clarify and understand the feedback that's given to you. And sometimes depending on a manager's skill set there, managing up to them might require a lot of work in that direction. I imagine a coach is a, a fantastic tool because coaches can do that on your behalf if you're being coached a little bit. Is that right? Well, the way I would enter into that is I think that, as, you know, ultimately I leave a situation, right? I'll work with a client for however long, um, but I'm going to leave and they're still going to have these relationships at work. Yeah. And so I never insert myself between my client and someone else. So I might lightly facilitate a conversation. I'll certainly brainstorm with my clients around how to approach different people or different things to try, Um, you know, across multiple different situations. It's interesting, actually, because just this morning I was providing, um, you know, detailed stakeholder feedback to a client of mine, and she really took issue with her manager's feedback. And so we're going to meet next week to strategize, like, how will she approach this person? Right? Like, 
what are ways that she can have a productive conversation when she actually fully disagrees? Yeah. With the feedback and feels as though her manager is no is not in a position to actually see most of the work she does. Yeah. So so I don't insert myself, but I am I am I am my client's advocate, like as long, you know, through and through. So along in that vein, what does a well there's probably a lot of things, but I'm curious for what you think about what does a coach provide that a boss or even a mentor cannot provide? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very different relationship um, than let's say a, um, a a relationship with with your boss or 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 a mentor for that matter. So you know, relative to someone's boss. And the boss may be a great coach, right? Like, cause there's some leaders out there who are great coaches and care very much about that, hone that craft in themselves. But at the end of the day, that person is also the performance manager. They're yeah. also the designer, decider of compensation and all that kind of good stuff. And so there's, um, there's a conflict in there a little bit. And that, that does not exist for me. And. And my clients, right? I am there to support them in the the goals that they choose, um, to provide my sort of objective and third party perspective, um, and and to be to be their advocate. Um, I my only agenda for my clients is the agenda they 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 um, choose for themselves. This is not the case. Um, really with almost any other relationship that that someone might have, right? Your boss has an agenda for you. Coworkers have an agenda for you. Your your team has an agenda for you. HR has an agenda for you. Your family has an agenda for you. Um, and they may all love and appreciate you deeply, but um, they still are not agenda free. Right? Um, and relative to a mentor, a mentor is really much more of like a teacher. Yeah. Right. Like a mentor is somebody who has walked your path before um, and can provide almost more guidance from that been there, done that perspective. Um, as a coach, I feel as though I am I'm wearing multiple hats. Um, one is definitely, you know, coaching in its most pure form is like the art of asking powerful questions that lead people to their own insights. I definitely wear this hat a lot. But then there's other times where um, I always just think about like what's in most service of my client. There are other times where sharing a framework or saying, you know, here's what I'm observing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or I hear you saying this, but um, whatever, your your body language is saying something else. Like what is going on for you, right? Um, so there's lots of times where not just asking like pure, clean, curious questions, I think is going to be in greater service to my client. But I'll never say you need to go do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll provide lots of ideas, um, and, you know, cast as an invitation. You're, you're guiding, not directing. And then occasionally, right. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When and it might be difficult to talk about in aggregate, but 
I'm curious about the themes that you might see in your work with clients and what you think in general are things that leaders or managers across the board are kind of needing to focus on right now. Yeah, um, I think it actually goes back to some of some of what we talked about in the beginning. But um, I, I, I truly feel as though people are still healing from the pandemic. My work changed during the pandemic vis-a-vis the years beforehand, where I just saw in my clients, they were not as goal-directed. And as a perfectly natural response to a situation that was very traumatic and very trying um, for leaders, right? It is hard to orient yourself around these higher-level development goals when you feel as though you can barely keep your head above water um, and you are so tapped from the demands, not just not just the sheer hours of the day, but um, but but the emotional load on leaders throughout the pandemic and still continuing to this day is high. Um, And so there's there's um, I. I think you, you'll see. I've got so much empathy for for leaders, but there are these weird expectations on leaders that they're somehow superhuman, right? That they're made of something different. But at the end of the day, they're they're people, um, and so leaders are challenged with burnout. And at the same time, they're being asked to support their whole team, who is like, "I'm tapped out." Yeah. Right. And and so there's just there's a lot. There's just a lot, and so. Um, so coaching is, is not therapy, right? Like we're very much focused on, um, creating a better tomorrow, but I have noticed that just the overall, um, feel like the overall themes, if I were to look in aggregate across all of my sessions, um, there, there is more around like being able to sort of stay steady, you know, as the like, the winds and the waves like whip around you um, yeah. so that you can show up well um, and and be there for your team. I think it's interesting that you say that because I don't think I'd wholly clocked this, but I think that what so much of your work that had resonated with me was um, like the emotional labor of being a leader. I loved that article. Yeah. Yeah. To the effect of how to not feel guilty about delegating and get into that was that I don't think there's a lot of content out there that does have empathy or the emotional side of leadership or not as much as I think there should be. And I don't mean to um, bemoan being a, a leader, but oftentimes I feel, you know, you'll go on LinkedIn and sometimes it'll be flooded with like kind of memes of like, people don't quit places, they quit bad bosses or something like that. I'm always like, sometimes yes, but also there's, you know, uh, a plethora of other dynamics and things at play. And uh, leaders are so often, I feel like, not given, um, I don't even know where I'm going with this exactly, but the fact that sometimes you really tapped into like, the guilt or the emotional burden and the challenges of leadership always really resonated with me. I really appreciate that about your content. Well, thank you. I mean, and honestly, it's it's my clients who um, kind of gift me with this 
with this insight. And I know, I know anytime one of my clients is grappling with something, whether it is like, I feel really guilty, like I can't put anything more on my team. So I'm up until midnight. I'm working all weekends. I'm like, I know they're not the only person out there. Yeah. I just know it profoundly. We all share this humanity. And if one of us is struggling with it, so many other people are. And so um, my clients are absolutely the inspiration for much, much that I write about um, and why it resonates for others is because I just know if one person is having a hard time with it, so is someone else. Yes. And I, you know, your work from, I was, one of the reasons I was so curious to talk to you is I thought that your writing has such exceptional insight into the more emotional side of management. Mm-hmm. And I think awareness and working on and dealing with that part of it, at least for me, has always been kind of foundational to surviving and thriving in a leadership role. Yeah. And I think in particular, in the emotional labor of being a leader and stop feeling guilty for delegating those two HBR articles. I know for myself, developing and maturing my emotional awareness was really, really key to developing into a better leader and learning how to more meaningfully connect with and support my teams. I was curious if that has in any way been part of your professional journey and what role like developing that emotional side of leadership has played in your success? You know, I truly believe that awareness is just the foundation to effectiveness. And, and there are multiple kinds of awareness. So, you know, emotional awareness is what you just alluded to. Absolutely that awareness of our strengths and weaknesses, right? Awareness of our um, personality tendencies. Um, Awareness of what energizes us and what depletes us. Yeah. Awareness of um, what we stand for, you know, our values and what we will and won't tolerate. So all of this, I think, is um, really important awareness for any person. Um, and it's part of really just, I don't, I don't think there's a finish line. I think we can become more aware of ourselves throughout the course of our, throughout the course of our lifetime. Um, and so, yes, this is something that, um, that is part of, you know, part of how I think about how I need to continually develop my, yeah, it's interesting. I think I, I think that one thing that is not talked about too much, but that I found to be true and I like to talk about a bit is that if you're, it can be challenging and you really have to be constantly like facing yourself, aware of yourself and aware of where you're falling short. But I feel like leadership is such a pathway toward like, I don't know, self-development and becoming a more intentional mm-hmm. version of your own self. Um, yeah while also helping others, hopefully, and not making it wholly just a self-improvement exercise. Um, And I've always really liked that about your work. I guess one thing I should maybe ask is, so to delve into the emotional labor of being a leader, could you maybe just define for our audience emotional labor from your perspective? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so emotional labor is centrally, you know, it centrally involves producing, quote unquote, the right feelings for your job. Okay, so it is evoking and suppressing emotions to meet the implicit or explicit expectations of your job. They are very often, um, for leaders in the business world, these are implicit expectations, right? But all organizations have these feeling rules and they're so deeply embedded that we don't even notice them. Um, but, uh, but they, but they exist. You know, some of the, the research around emotional labor, it actually started in the service sector. So, um, it was first defined by the sociologist Arlie Hochschild, um, back in 1983. She wrote this seminal book called The Managed Heart. Um, she was really focused on the service sector and most of the research was really focused there for years and years and years because you can think about it like service with a smile, right? Mm-hmm. Customers always right. Like it's just rife for kind of research around emotional labor. And it wasn't until I believe it's 2008 that some of the first research on emotional labor and leaders um, occurred. So it's really actually still in its nascency. Wow. Something that I did, but thank you for that. I just wrote down the Munich chart. I'm going to check that out. Uh, and as you're talking, something occurred to me, which is that, so I come from a, an agency background of mm-hmm. marketing agencies. And one thing that we talk about a bit and we've always found is that folks who maybe came from a service industry background, like college or just out of school, were fantastic fits. And it was always like, all right, they can multitask, they can hustle. But I think there's also the other element to it of clients can be complex, deadlines can be complex, agencies are the you know, unique beasts in their own way. And mm-hmm. it has clicked for me too that there's also just the like the ability to, I suppose, in some ways emotional labor is maybe repressing or saving for later your own feelings to be appropriate in the moment. Is that also a way to describe it? Yeah. So sometimes you can engage in emotional labor and it's and it's genuine. It's not a facade. So for example, perhaps you have someone on your team who's gone through some like hard personal times. The expectation, right, is you show up with some empathy. Right. right. You might actually truly feel that. So that's emotional labor, right? Like you are showing up with empathy. It's an expectation of your role, but it's genuine. It's a facade. There's other times, though, and this is really where the dilemma comes in, where how you feel and what you're expected to display mm-hmm. are are incongruent. So, for example... um, you know, I was a management consultant much earlier in my career. And I'll never forget this one client who was just so offensive. And I'm like steaming inside. And at the same time, I know that I need to show up professional. I need to show up nice, respectful, regardless of the fact that I am not receiving that in return. Right. Um, and, and so I do. Like, I understand these expectations. No one has said them to me, but I, they are there. They, uh, they, you know, I've read the tea leaves. I know exactly what I need to be doing. I shove my emotions down. Um, I show up the way I should. Yeah. And I do it because I know this is not going to end well for me. 
if I tell this person what a jerk they are. Right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I took solace in the fact like, you know, consulting projects end, right? Like I knew I would be leaving at some point. The problem with emotional labor when we are faking our emotions, it really comes in when we need to do it repeatedly. That is when we see some really, really negative outcomes for both individuals as well as organizations where um, where this is a this is sort of a more frequent thing that people need to be doing. So when there when one is required to have that disparity between how they feel and how they're showing up, if you have to do too much of that, what what are the outcomes? What does happen? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of spillover to people's home lives. Well, I'll, I'll start there. Um, so we end up seeing more conflict at home. Um, there are, there's insomnia, aches, pains, illness, um, heavier drinking. And then within the workplace, what we see are sort of really two primary outcomes from when there's a lot of emotional labor. One is burnout, higher incidence of burnout. And, um, and on the flip side of that, right, emotional labor, right? It, it is, it is, it is labor. It is work. And when we, and it is, um, it is work that taps into our self-control. Okay. When we deplete our self-control, we have less resources left. And so we're also more likely to lash out at others. So at work, it's like sort of burnout or lash out, um, by maybe saying a disparaging or belittling comment to a coworker that, you know, if, if, if we weren't so tapped, right, we would have had the self-control to kind of keep those thoughts to ourselves. So significant outcomes for individuals. And these in turn, of course, have negative outcomes for organization in terms of engagement, turnover, productivity, financial performance. Um, and that's why, you know, this, this, ar- this, ar- or this article was really an argument um, that, you know, organization is, you need to recognize this work that your leaders are doing and support it because it's very real um, and it's hard. Yes. Uh, so much of what you're saying is resonating with me. Um, for So in the article, you do give some actionable advice and suggestions around what organizations can do to support their teams. And I, could you talk a little bit about what what those tips and tricks are? Yes. Um, so from an, indiv- from an organizational perspective, I'll just queue up too. I, my, um, my next HBR article, assuming they accept it, is all about what individuals can do Ooh. Um, until their organizations catch up. But um, so from an organizational perspective, what I would love to see is when they just recognize this. Like you don't see, you know, if you look at any job description or um, performance kind of form, you know, you don't see like performs emotional labor. Right. Anywhere there. Um, So it starts with just recognizing like this is very much a part of the work of leaders. And it matters so much. Leaders have an outsized impact on group moods, emotional states, team climate. Um, And this in turn affects financial performance um, and other key metrics for an organization. So start by just recognizing that this is something that leaders are doing um, and their work on this front is actually very important. Um, secondly, um, I would love to see more um, 
guess, training and opportunities for leaders to fine tune some of these emotional competencies. So if you think to, um, you know, I went to, I went to business school. There, there was nothing at my business school and it was a great business school. Um, that was really about, um, sort of the emotional aspects of leadership and how do you handle these? I don't see them in leadership development programs and in organization. And so some training and workshops around kind of developing um, some of these higher emotional competencies would be great. And I'm not talking about just sort of like generic EQ, right? Mm -hmm. This is is really important, of course. Um, But more around some of these like specific emotional demands. And then, you know, one of the other things that I touch on in that article is really um, encouraging leaders to embrace self-compassion. So what I have found in my work with leaders is that many hesitate to embrace self-compassion. There's sort of a concern that, oh, if I quote unquote get soft on myself, yeah, um, I won't, I won't succeed. Like this is actually what's gotten me to this place, this, this drive. And, um, what we see from the research is sure you can be driven, but, but treating yourself with the kindness you would extend a friend unlocks so much more. Um, well, it unlocks a, a sort of a kinder day for yourself. It also really unlocks a lot of performance benefits. That is really interesting. I think I definitely have, I've found that true for myself. I can have a really strong inner critic. And I think yeah. that in the early stages of my career, first few years as a manager, that I drove really strong results. But as critical as I was to myself, I was also sometimes hypercritical of the teams I was managing and I wanted perfection. And the yeah. moment as I started to learn more and embrace some self-compassion, I was able to like more naturally more naturally extend grace to my teams and then was able to actually develop these really fulfilling and more much more meaningful and also impactful relationships, yeah. I think. So I right. think it is really powerful, but also understand when you say people are like it's kind of like you're afraid people well I was afraid to like lose my edge in a way. Exactly. That's exactly it. Um, but you're not alone with that, um, that sort of recognition, like, gosh, the more compassionate I am, um, to myself, the more compassion I ex- can extend others. And I now have this improved relationship with my, like it, it is, it works both ways. These two things are linked. Yeah. And I'm, well, don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole or ramble, but as you're talking, I'm kind of, there's one thing I'm thinking about, which is that I think at a certain point as a leader, if you have to choose, you mentioned psychological safety much earlier in the conversation, yes. saying that uh, managers need to be able to create and part of an executive, a competent executive presence, I think. Yeah. And I think that at times managers are, are holding the tension between having self-compassion, though high standards for themselves, creating a psychologically safe environment for their teams, but then also knowing they are ultimately responsible for the end result. And like kind of, you know, it's on them if there is a mistake and they need to own their team's mistakes as opposed to making their teams worry about 
making, let's say. Yeah. Not totally articulate, but there's the gap there. And I feel like that risk is the tension of leadership sometimes. Yes. I agree. Well, so I, let me, so they, like, I, if anyone has not read The Emotional Labor of Being a Leader, especially if you're a manager, we will link to it in the show notes. And I really highly recommend that. One thing I'm curious about, Gina, is that in our current environment, so you mentioned things have changed so much since COVID. Yeah. What do you think leaders need to be mindful of right now for themselves, for their teams? And what do they need to be bringing to the table that wasn't necessary five years ago? Um, oh boy. Yes. So, um, I think the workplace has gone through some profound shifts, um, in the last few years in terms of what leaders need to be bringing to the table. Um, the expectations on them now for, um, demonstrating empathy and compassion you know, offering like so much flexibility. Um, th- those are higher and I don't disagree with them. Um, but, but the ask on those fronts is higher of leaders now than it was, uh, you know, a number of years ago. And like you were just mentioning, the expectation they deliver results has not changed at all. And in fact, oftentimes they're, they're, they're being asked to deliver these results with even less resources. So there is a real squeeze. So for, I'm saying you've said you've got another article that might be coming out, which I, I will immediately read if it gets published. Um, maybe this is a little insider baseball, but I'm really curious about what is HBR's process? What is it like to write a piece of content for them? What from, start pitcher assignment to collaboration editing publication what is that process like for you as a writer um so the the process for me as a writer is i um you know i come i i have an idea right? and i've written enough now that I, I, honestly i just spot articles like i i don't need to stop and like think like what can i really write about like i just spot opportunities for articles that i think could be interesting um, HBR wants to make sure, of course, that the content, um, not just that you have standing in the content, but that it's fresh. Mm-hmm. And so when I have an idea for an article, one of the first things I do is I make sure that nothing's been published on it in HBR in the last few years, because if it has, like, there's no reason for me to spend time writing a pitch. Right. Um, so then assuming, assuming it has not been, um, published on and I have a unique angle, um, into a topic, like for example, that stop feeling del- guilty about delegating. If you go and look at HBR, there are tons of articles about delegating, right? And letting go and all that kind of good stuff. But there was not one on, on guilt as an obstacle, right? That made it a unique piece. Um, so. So then I'll write up a pitch um, where I'm sort of presenting the frame, some maybe some key points I'll flesh out in my article um, and why I think it's compelling. Um, so it's it's almost like any other pitch you might make in your work, right? Like you're trying to sell someone on your 
yeah. on your idea, right? Um, and I'll send my pitch off to the editor that I work with. Um, there, you know, there's there's a, a team of people at HBR who will consider these pitches. Um, and then I'll receive some feedback that, um, yeah, it looks really interesting. Would love to see a draft or um, interesting. But, you know, um, have you thought about A, B or C? Um, or um, thank you very much, but no thanks. Right. So it, it tends to be sort of one of these three responses. And then I will work on crafting my draft. And, you know, for me, uh, I give myself like a good week to write an article because I really like to let it breathe. And I'm a big fan of letting my unconscious do a lot of work for me. Yeah. And so I'll write for a little bit and I'll put it away and then things just come to me. Maybe I'm taking a walk or I'm in the shower driving or whatever. I'm like, oh, you know, and I didn't have to expect, I didn't have to use any effort to kind of get to that new idea or way to think about something. And so... I'll come back to it and, you know, work on it for a couple more hours and um, and just fine tune it. Um, I really try to get it to, you know, as good of a place as I can before I send it off to my editor. And then I'll re- typically receive a little bit of feedback. I might make some changes um, if they're requested. And then um, it ends up kind of going into sort of the, it goes through another round of editing at on the HBR level and gets into the keel. It's so, well, thank you for that. Uh, yeah. It kind of demystifies it. I'm a, such a nerd about their content. I'm really happy to know that. Um, but it, it's so funny you mentioned about your unconscious because I think I slightly compartmentalize guests for the show. I'll be like, Dina, we're going to talk about business and leadership. And then other folks will be like, all right, you're talking about creative process. But I think one of the toughest things about tight deadlines is you cannot give your unconscious enough space to like help you out there. Could you just say a little bit more about what you mean by that and how you let your unconscious kind of guide your work a bit? Yeah, so um, it actually, there's a lot of science um, that that supports this. This is not just like my weird little hack. Um, but we we tend to, if you even just think about like when you have those aha moments, Right. You are not actively focused on trying to solve the problem. Right. They come out of nowhere. And it's like, yeah, like, I've got it. Right. Yeah. And it's because you're no longer when we actively focus on trying to solve a problem, we we kind of get tunnel vision. Yeah. Um, we get tunnel vision on that. Um, we're engaging certain networks in our brain that are very sort of like task oriented. And for an insight to bubble up. Basically, what's happening is things are like, um, and I'm not a I'm not a neuroscientist, so, but like, you have all of these neurons, right? And things are sort of like connecting in different ways. And when you finally allow your prefrontal cortex to um, to quiet down by not actively focusing, right? Like you're taking a walk, you're in the shower, you're driving. Yeah. Um, it allows these insights to bubble up, like they can actually kind of like break through. And if you tend to be in sort of like a slightly sort of like positive state, this further promotes it, right? Like I love taking walks. I feel great when I'm out there with my dog. Like it's just, it's just nice. And so I actually find a lot of ideas come to me then. And so I'll like, you know, I'll whip out my iPhone and leave myself like a 
whatever, like a little like voice message yeah. to kind of capture my thoughts so I can weave them in the next time I'm like back at it. So that that's that's really like the way I think about it. So I really do try to give myself space so that um kind of some of these interesting connections that maybe I wouldn't have been able to make can come through. Are you working on any other projects outside of that upcoming article? Yes, 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 yes. I'm actually super excited um, because I'm about to sign a book contract. Uh Yes. And so this is going to be actually with my co-author from the the article around the emotional labor of being a leader, which um, thank you for all your kind comments on that. Um, yeah, so we've got a larger project that um, we're about to undertake together, and um, I'm I'm really excited for this adventure with her. That is awesome, and also news for me as a reader. I'm so excited for that. Uh, good luck. Not that you need it, but I'll take it. Have you ever written a book before, a long form piece of content, or is this your first foray into that? No, this is this this is my first go. Um, but I've gotten, been around enough authors at this point to know like um one, I feel confident I can do it. Um, but two, I know it is not gonna be easy at all. Um, you know, so I'm I'm getting myself ready for it. Oh, congratulations. I'm I'm so happy to hear that. Um, oh, thank you. And but if in our like last few minutes together, I guess one question I have, which I also asked of Ellen, a previous leadership coach guest, would be: Is there ever times where you think an individual is considering coaching, but actually they that is not the solution to the problem they're trying to solve? Yeah, yeah. Um, I do. Um, I I tend to think that coaching can be helpful really for anyone, for people to have dedicated white space to think out loud, kind of get their thoughts clear, be able to kind of like focus on things that maybe otherwise get always pushed to the back burner. I think coaching can be helpful for anybody. But when I'm meeting with people to assess whether we might be a good fit to work together, they're of course assessing me. I'm also assessing them to see, would this person be a good fit for for me and my coaching. And when I'm thinking about that, what I'm looking for, like, is this person, um, are they willing to look inside? Are they willing to sort of like own their piece of the situation, right? Or are they just, are they just um, choosing to adopt somewhat of a victim mentality and just blame other people for the circumstances? So I'm looking, I'm looking at that because a willingness to, um, to accept that we are partially at least responsible for, for our lives and our circumstances and the futures we create, it's, it's fundamentally important to, um, getting something out of coaching as well as an open mindedness to trying things differently. Mm-hmm. Right. We all exist predominantly in our habits. And sometimes those habits were really effective um, at a time and now they have they no longer serve. And so I'm also really um, trying to observe like, is this person open to trying different things, doing things differently? Because that's also important. Um, you know, it's sort of that proverbial like, if you want to get different results, you need to do things differently. Yeah. So to effectively engage with coaching, you have to be willing 
to be coached and be coachable, essentially. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I also, and then finally, I look for people who are very, um, they're very committed to like their excellence, um, but also hold themselves lightly. Like, I yeah, think it is so possible to, like, shoot for the moon and kind of, like, have a good laugh at yourself all at the same time. Because we all make mistakes. We all fall down. And it's just part of being human. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like it's just really good life advice, too. So thank you. <laughs> well, is there anything, Dina, that you think I maybe should have asked that would be interesting for listeners about coaching or some of the topics we touched on that? you'd want to share before we wrap up? Because, you know, I would just say if, if people out there are considering coaching, talk to talk to a few coaches. Okay. Um, because each coach is going to have their own unique style. They're going to bring different things to the table. And ultimately, you want to find someone that, that you really like working with and who you feel like is, um, has the kind of like the capacity and is equipped to help you in the things that you care about shifting the most. Okay, thank you. Uh, so if someone wanted to get in touch with you and reach out, what would be the best places to to do that? Um, well, I would love if people wanted to connect on LinkedIn. So easy to find me there, um, Dina Denham-Smith. And then similarly, um, online, you know, my website actually has two, there are two different ways of finding me, but you can just do Dina D. Smith dot com that'll take you there um and those those are really those are the really the best ways and my my website um you know if you like what you see and you want to get in touch there's a contact form and there's a number of also um free resources there for leaders so you can just get on and, and download some stuff that maybe would be helpful too all right well we can put all those in the show notes and i cannot I'm going to wait for your, your book to come out. It's going to be a way for me to vicariously spend more time with you. So like you sound. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Thank you. I have one more article recommendation for you. Just yes. based on the one that um, you seem to orient yourselves to. I wrote an article last year and it was for HBR Ascend, but it's about compassion fatigue. And I think you'll love it. All right. I'm going to check it out and we can throw that one in the show notes too. Thank you so much. Yeah. Fatigue. Um, all right. Okay, good. Well, thank you. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed our chat with Dina. We'll be coming to you next week with an interview with Liv Albert, creator of the hit podcast. Let's talk about myths, baby. Oh, I like that, Ian. Uh, to support the show, you can rate, review, and subscribe. Those things make a huge difference. And if you like today's conversation, you'll probably like the Content People newsletter. Subscribe at the link in the show notes. And that's it, folks. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in touch, you can always email us at contentpeople at brafton.com. Bye.